Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I'm your host Tony, and today we're going to look at Crash Bandicoot, a three-dimensional platforming title developed by Naughty Dog and published by Sony Computer Entertainment for the Sony PlayStation back in 1996. We are going to talk about that title in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 45. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And I also have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. The Discord server is probably the best way to get in touch with me and to interact with members of the community. So definitely looking forward to having you join that discussion. I also want to mention just a special special announcement that our Patreon is now live. That is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. Go out there, join up every Wednesday or every other Wednesday. I should say there will be a new podcast provided for anybody that subscribes at the golden oldies tier or higher. That new podcast is called classic gaming today expansion pack, where we kind of take a little bit of a different look at some of the classic games and technologies than what we do in this main podcast. Sometimes we might look at a specific game or a specific technology. Other times we might have top X lists, or we might talk about different topics like this upcoming Wednesday. The very first podcast in this new series is going to be posted on Wednesday, and it is entitled The Sequels That Never Came. So we'll go through a few games from my perspective that should have gotten sequels, were promised sequels, and we never got them. So hopefully you all join me for that journey. It should be a very fun time. And also stay tuned after this episode for an exclusive preview of the very first episode of that new podcast. So certainly if you like what you hear after this show concludes, the way to get more of that is out on Patreon. Once again, this is just launching today. And the first episode of the new podcast will launch this Wednesday and will be released every other Wednesday thereafter. So when you go out there, just recognize that we don't have a huge backlog just yet. This is an opportunity to get in on the ground floor of the new Patreon. I certainly hope you join. I'll also be posting a bunch of different Patreon blog articles out there, as well as maybe some additional podcast content. I'm only committing to every other week releases, every other Wednesday releases. That doesn't mean I can't do more if I have the time to do so. So definitely looking forward to you guys joining me on that journey as well. That is once again, patreon.com slash classic gaming today. And a preview will be after this episode, after this show concludes, stick around for a little bit of a preview of the upcoming Patreon episode. For anyone who may be new, welcome I just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context. Where does it sit in the overall video and computer game industry historical perspective? And then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review 
because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or star rating or anything like that. But we do look at every single game from several different perspectives. We look at the graphics. How does the game look? Sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it may have been released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? And we do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. I highly recommend you play them. No, you must play them because they are just that good. They remain good to this day. They haven't even aged a bit. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend them. They're not quite Pantheon level but you should still probably enjoy them, especially if you have nostalgia for the game or you enjoy the genre in which the game resides. You absolutely should play them. Once again, highly recommended. These are still really good experiences. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our mediocre mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broad population. They may have had a couple of issues. They may have aged a little bit. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre that the game exists in, but I cannot recommend these to the broader population. They just have some things wrong with them, whether that's just age or they might have had a couple of issues to begin with. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anybody play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly or... They may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Crash Bandicoot. Crash Bandicoot is a three-dimensional platforming title developed by Naughty Dog and published by Sony Computer Entertainment for the Sony PlayStation back in 1996. Before we can talk about Crash Bandicoot, we have to talk about its creators, the company Naughty Dog, and that group's own origin story. So before Naughty Dog was, in fact, Naughty Dog, it was Jam Software, J-A-M Software, founded in 1984 by childhood friends Jason Rubin, Andy Gavin, and Mike Goyett. As is the case with many 1980s game development and company founding stories, Jason and Andy had met by happenstance as both attended the same Hebrew school. One weekend in 1982... While they were both still preteens, they struck up a conversation and quickly realized that they shared many of the same interests, namely computers and video games. That conversation quickly bloomed into a friendship, and over the couple years that followed, they made another acquaintance in Mike Goyet, who shared similar interests, until finally, in 1984, the trio decided to form Jam Software, with Jam literally standing for Jason, Andy, and Mike or at least the first letters in each of their names. 
That partnership, however, would be short-lived, as Mike Goyet ultimately lost interest and ended up not contributing much to the company's work, which drove both Gavin and Rubin to seek a buyout of their friend's stake in the company, equating to approximately $100. By the way, I feel it necessary to mention that right now, we're effectively talking about three young teenagers discussing corporate strategies, equity, and quote-unquote stocks for their newly formed company. It always fascinates me how these early entrepreneur game developers get their start and their overall mindset upon the point that their companies, so to speak, are created. It's a reminder of a simpler time, as back in the 80s, a software development company could be a company simply by saying, here we are, we're now a company. I suppose the same kind of holds true today, sort of, but the industry is so much more mature now that I feel like it's harder to actually make a mark in the industry as an independent studio in comparison to when the industry was still developing. Anyway, mild tangent aside, with Andy Gavin and Jason Rubin now a duo rather than a trio, they've rebranded their company Jam Software as Jam Software, with Jam now standing for Jason and Andy's Magic. Under that moniker, the pair began working in earnest on computer titles, including a skiing game called Ski Crazed, which they made around $250 off of, as well as an adventure title named Dream Zone, which sold around 10,000 copies, earning Jam Software approximately $15,000 in profit. Not too bad for a couple of teenage developers. Gavin and Rubin throughout the late 80s would be moderately successful, but they never really had what many would consider to be a breakout hit. And during this time, they had worked under a publishing deal with a company called Baudville, which was a relatively small-scale company in the burgeoning computer game market. Eventually, in 1989, the pair began to set their sights a bit bigger, and they chose to leave the partnership with Baudville and instead seek out bigger publishing partners and more widespread opportunities. As a means to start fresh and truly distance themselves from their earlier publishing relationship, Gavin and Rubin decided to rename their company. Jam Software from 1989 on would be known as Naughty Dog. And as Naughty Dog, Gavin and Rubin would continue working on video games, striking up a new publishing deal with the much bigger Electronic Arts, who would go on to publish a number of Naughty Dog's early games, including the comedy role-playing game Keef the Thief, as well as the Sega Genesis role-playing game Rings of Power, which, by the way, is completely unrelated to Lord of the Rings, in case anybody was wondering. These early titles, while moderately successful, still weren't quite reaching the levels that the team were looking for. And in fact, even though Rings of Power sold out its initial production run of 100,000 copies within the first three months of release, Electronic Arts decided not to issue any additional cartridges for the title, believing that the title wouldn't continue to be profitable, especially considering the cost associated with producing the extra cartridges, along with some weird Sega rules around the number of cartridges that could be purchased at certain price points. That decision by Electronic Arts led Gavin and Rubin to both become disillusioned with the video game industry, and they decided to step away from video game development for a while. Now, recognize, these aren't grizzled video game developers we're talking about here. At this time, the two were still going to college, but regardless, the industry was sending them a message. There was a focus on big hit kinds of titles, and Naughty Dog, despite a modicum of success, just wasn't hitting the level of success that major publishers were expecting. 
Beyond that, because they weren't yet big players in the industry, they didn't have the freedom to distribute and sell their titles as much as they wanted. Just look at the situation with Rings of Power. They had a title that sold out all available copies, but some weird esoteric cartridge publishing restrictions meant that no further copies could be created. I can completely understand why Gavin and Rubin would want to take a break from the industry. After stepping away, however, the pair didn't just sit around doing nothing. Andy Gavin decided to continue his education, going to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT, to pursue a PhD, while Jason Rubin moved to California and founded a special effects company with the goal of working on three-dimensional graphics and how that new technology could be applied to Hollywood films. Both of these endeavors, as you might imagine, would eventually contribute to future Naughty Dog successes, as Gavin's PhD work gave him the knowledge and skills to develop his own programming languages and tools that would eventually be used in future titles, while Rubin's special effects and 3D graphics experience would translate directly into future video game development. But, regardless of what might happen in the future, at this point in our story, Naughty Dog as a company was effectively shut down. This would all change, however, when the pair got a call from Trip Hawkins, the founder of Electronic Arts. Despite the publishing situation around Rings of Power, Hawkins believed that Naughty Dog was a talented company, and he wanted to see if Gavin and Rubin wanted to work on games for a brand new, yet-to-be-released console that Hawkins was personally spearheading. That console was the 3DO. Now, the 3DO is an interesting console in its own right, because it would follow a very different model than nearly every other console to be released around this time. And we've talked a little bit about the console market of the 1990s before, but for those who may need a refresher, the early to mid-90s was an extremely competitive time in the home video game console market. Spurred on by the success of Sega and Nintendo and their constant battling for market share, there were a number of other companies that decided to try their hand at capturing a slice of the industry, and I'd venture a guess that the 90s was probably the period of time with the most diverse console lineup in history. Adding to that diversity was changing technology, as CD-ROMs were becoming more prevalent in the market, especially as the mid-90s approached. The 3DO was a new concept in the home console market. Most console makers, like Nintendo, would develop a hardware platform that they controlled and manufactured. The 3DO would instead be defined as a set of technical standards, which any manufacturer could license and effectively release their own console using. The overarching goal, as defined by Trip Hawkins, was that he wanted to create the most powerful advanced console on the market, utilizing high-quality graphics, CD-ROM technology, and broader multimedia capabilities to capture market share and deliver a gaming experience beyond what other console makers were capable of. He would end up working with various manufacturers to bring that concept to market, including Panasonic, Goldstar, and Sanyo, each of whom would eventually have different iterations and versions of the console. Hawkins had a plan for getting the hardware to market, But what he needed were developers, and it was for that reason that he contacted Naughty Dog in the hopes of persuading Andy Gavin and Jason Rubin to return to game development and create games for the forthcoming console. For Gavin and Rubin, the concept sounded appealing. They were still stinging a bit over the cartridge production fiasco for Rings of Power, and they thought that CD-ROM technology, which was much more easily mass-produced than plastic cartridges, could possibly afford them an opportunity to reach higher levels of success than they had previously enjoyed. Shortly after discussing the possibilities with Hawkins, they accepted his proposal. 
Naughty Dog was going to be a developer for the forthcoming 3DO console. The only issue was they kind of needed to figure out what game they wanted to create, and here they began reviewing the current big hits across the video game industry. Recognizing that fighting games were some of the more popular titles of the time, spurred on primarily by Street Fighter II and Mortal Kombat, Naughty Dog decided that their 3DO-based game would be a one-on-one fighting title in a similar style to Mortal Kombat, using digitized actors as opposed to hand-drawn graphics to deliver an over-the-top fighting experience. Creating a fighting game provided several benefits that Naughty Dog found appealing. For one, fighting games were generally much less deep than role-playing games, which had been Naughty Dog's focus up to this point, so they felt like they could create an actual playable title in less time than their prior efforts. Another appealing aspect of fighting games, in particular titles like Mortal Kombat, was the fact that digitizing actors could potentially reduce the amount of work needed to animate and create graphics in the game, since the team could use recorded performances rather than 100% creating everything from scratch. Like we had talked about during our Mortal Kombat episode, the reality is that digitizing actors is actually a bit more intense than many assume, but for Gavin and Ruben, this sounded like the best approach for creating their 3DO fighting game title. So Naughty Dog began working on the title as an entirely self-funded venture, meaning that they were working solely with money they had received from their prior titles, because no publisher at the time was attached to that particular development. What that meant was that the team was free to do whatever they wanted creatively, but it also meant that there wasn't a whole lot of wiggle room to make mistakes, because they only had around $80,000 to use in the creation of the game. With such a constrained budget, the team couldn't really rent out studio space or use high-powered machines and equipment to develop their title, so they ended up using their apartment and hung sheets as the background for their game, with various actors brought in to wear different costumes and perform moves in front of a very amateur green screen kind of setup. Their apartment was so small, in fact, that Gavin and Ruben had to record the moves by setting up their cameras in the hallway of their apartment complex, leaving the door to their apartment open while performers executed various punches, kicks, and jumps inside. This weird combination of video recording, movement, and noise led many in the apartment complex to believe that Gavin and Ruben were making kinky adult films, which wasn't actually the case, luckily, but was absolutely hilarious to me nonetheless. I can basically picture it now. You have a big, muscular guy walking the halls of an apartment building wearing nothing but a toga, a video camera tripod pointing into an open-door apartment, and a series of grunts emanating from the room. It's like a perfect storm of misunderstanding and confusion. And anyway, that fighting title, it was a fighting title by the way, would eventually come together as Way of the Warrior, and with no publisher attached, Naughty Dog had to figure out how to actually distribute the game. They had used up nearly all of their money while they created the title, so it wasn't like they could self-publish. They needed to secure a publishing deal. With their last $10,000, they rented out booth space at the 1994 Winter Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, in the hopes of demoing their title and finding a publisher who might be interested in distributing their game. It turns out, there were quite a few publishers who became interested, primarily because they had created an actual game game for the 3DO. A lot of the other companies that were working on the system had jumped on the multimedia bandwagon to create a number of less interactive, video-driven experiences. While you guys all know that I love full-motion video titles, and I love the 3DO primarily because some of their strange FMV experiences were made on that system, the publishers at CES were very interested in acquiring the rights to Way of the Warrior, and there actually ended up being a little bit of a bidding war between three different companies, Crystal Dynamics, 
the 3DO company, which was Trip Hawkins' spin-off company focused on the 3DO development, and Universal Interactive, which was a new branch of the traditionally Hollywood-focused Universal Pictures, albeit focused on games as opposed to movies. While all three companies would present compelling cases for themselves, ultimately, Naughty Dog decided to sign with Universal Interactive, primarily for two reasons. For one, Universal indicated they would fund, in total, the next three games Naughty Dog would create, while still allowing Naughty Dog to maintain full creative freedom to design and make the games they wanted to make. And secondarily, though perhaps as important, Universal offered Naughty Dog studio space on their production lot for free, meaning Naughty Dog no longer had to work out of their apartment. They could have an actual office. Well, actually, I should probably clarify that. That production lot space was effectively free insofar as Gavin and Ruben didn't have to pay for the space. But under the conditions of the deal, Universal Interactive would have the rights to see any prospective game that the team was working on, with the option of buying the rights to the title. Now, it's not like Naughty Dog had to sell those rights to Universal. They did maintain independence as a development studio. But, according to Gavin and Rubin, deciding to go with a company other than Universal could have potentially meant that their free lot space could be taken away from them. So even though there was no requirement to work solely with Universal, there were some politics at play here. Regardless of those politics, though, Naughty Dog was now a true, full-fledged game development company. And in later years, Gavin and Rubin would indicate that their work on Way of the Warrior was the point where Naughty Dog would transition from being a hobbyist game developer into an actual professional game studio, with the pair stating that needing to use their own funds to complete the title led to a much closer focus on resource management and some of the project management skills needed to be effective as a real game development studio. Given their new deal with Universal Interactive, it sure seemed like their renewed focus paid off, and shortly after signing that deal, Gavin and Ruben began their cross-country move to begin taking up residence in their new office space located in sunny Los Angeles, California. Along the way, the pair would begin brainstorming on what their first title under the new publishing deal should be, and to do that, they began studying current popular trends in the industry. While brainstorming, they realized that some of the more popular game genres of the time, namely racing, fighting, and shooting titles, had started a transition from primarily two-dimensional graphics to full-fledged three-dimensional visuals, which we've actually talked a little bit about before during our episode on Daytona USA. One genre that hadn't yet made the switch to 3D, though, was the popular character-driven platform game. Games like Super Mario Bros., Sonic the Hedgehog, DuckTales, and Aladdin, just to name a few. Gavin and Rubin were both fans of the genre, and in particular were enamored by Donkey Kong Country, which was a major release for Nintendo and pretty much represented the pinnacle of 16-bit platforming, at least up to that point. Gavin and Rubin considered, what if Naughty Dog could take a platformer like Donkey Kong Country with advanced visuals and tight controls, but expand the world to be truly three-dimensional as opposed to a purely two-dimensional side-scrolling experience? If they could do that, they might have something revolutionary on their hands. Excited by the idea, the pair continued to brainstorm various concepts throughout their journey to L.A., and when they finally arrived at their new offices, they got straight to work on beginning to build out the general high-level concept for an eventual pitch to Universal Interactive leadership. This idea of creating a 3D platforming title is what would eventually evolve into the very first Crash Bandicoot game. 
Once Naughty Dog was settled in their new office space, they set up some time to pitch their game to Universal, with the high-level concept being the creation of a game where rather than viewing the action from a side perspective, as was customary in platformers of the time, you would view your character from behind and would travel into the game world as you played, utilizing a three-dimensional perspective to provide a platforming experience unlike almost any game that had come before it. Universal loved the idea, as did Naughty Dog, and work on the game would begin in earnest shortly after that meeting, with the title coming to be known internally as Sonic's Ass Game, a reference to the fact that for a large portion of the game, the player would be looking at the back of the character. Now, this actually posed a little bit of difficulty for the game designers, as in many games, the main character's design and primary means of expression comes from the front of their body and their face. Think about a character like Mario. Players know him because of his trademark overalls, hat, and mustache. If all you ever saw was the back of Mario's head, he may not have become all that iconic. Think about even other characters outside of video games, like Mickey Mouse. The face is the most expressive part of the character, so designing a game where the core conceit was staying behind your character in such a way that you may never actually see their face posed a unique challenge. How could the designers make players care about a character if they never really saw them? In this case, the answer would be multidimensional, literally. One way the designers chose to address the issue was to allow the main character the ability to glance over his shoulder back towards the camera in a kind of sarcastic or at least sassy kind of look. This was a relatively simple way of allowing players to see the actual character in the game, but even more impactful was the decision to include a variety of different level types in the experience, where various perspectives could be used on any given level. In some levels, the game might look like a traditional side-scrolling platformer. In other levels, you might have the originally pitched behind-the-character view of the world, allowing you to walk forward into the game world, while other levels might require the player to run towards the screen, such as if they were trying to avoid an obstacle behind them, like a boulder, sort of like from Indiana Jones. Designing the game with this variety of levels would help to solve the problem while further diversifying the game's mechanics, which at the end of the day would end up making the game a more engaging experience for the player. So, the design team kind of understood the overall framework for the title and its levels, but the question remained, what console should the team develop for? As we've talked about previously, around this time in the 90s, there were a ton of different consoles available to the general public, and Naughty Dog itself had some prior experience with both 3DO as well as Apple-based computer platforms. But here the game's design helped to drive Naughty Dog towards an eventual solution. Naughty Dog's game, like we just talked about, was being designed to be a three-dimensional experience, and as a three-dimensional experience... That meant that only a handful of consoles even had the potential power to support the design. 16-bit systems like the Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis were pretty much out, as even though certain developers were able to develop pseudo-3D experiences for those systems, they just really weren't powerful enough to render a detailed three-dimensional world. There were other more powerful systems available, like the 3DO, Atari Jaguar, and Sega Saturn, so there were some options. The issue with those consoles, though was that the development process for those systems was often considered to be cumbersome, and with the relatively low sales figures for each of them, the team really didn't find the prospect of developing a brand new game for those systems to be all that appealing. There was, though, a new console on the block that looked like it might be a perfect fit, 
and that was the Sony PlayStation, which was an offshoot of a failed agreement between Sony and Nintendo to create a CD-based add-on for the Nintendo's Super Nintendo system. Sony's new console looked like it might be a match made in heaven, with advanced graphics and multimedia capabilities, a streamlined development process, and perhaps most importantly, a wide-open gaming ecosystem that hadn't yet been inundated with other intellectual property. In fact, at the time, the Sony PlayStation didn't even have a mascot. There was no Mario, there was no Sonic, no Bonk. It was just a powerful console waiting to be exploited, and Naughty Dog was hopeful that their game would not only be successful, but might also even convince Sony to adopt their new game's character as their console's mascot, which would likely be a golden ticket to superstardom for Ruben, Gavin, and the rest of the growing Naughty Dog team. Speaking of that new character, the team spent a fair amount of time trying to figure out exactly what and who their main character would be. The team knew from the beginning that they wanted to create an anthropomorphized version of an animal, similar to Sonic, and they further knew that they wanted to select an animal that wasn't all that well-known around the world, kind of like a hedgehog. In other words, Naughty Dog's new game wasn't going to be starring a dog or a cat or any animal that's common, so to speak. Instead, the team began researching Tasmanian animals, partially inspired by Warner Brothers' Tasmanian Devil cartoon character, and started playing around with designs centered on animals like the Wombat. And in fact, one of the first iterations of the character was named Willie the Wombat. That name, though, was never intended to be final. Even though as the character evolved into a more bandicoot-looking model, the internal name for the character still remained Willie the Wombat. But as the character designs evolved, it became pretty clear that the team didn't need to create a truly realistic look of a real-world animal. And eventually, Gammon and Ruben directed their art team to simply design a character that made sense for the game, and a character design that would work within the limitations of the PlayStation's hardware. They also wanted it to be distinct enough that people around the world would recognize him. So with that overall direction... What resulted was an orange-furred character with an oversized head, an expressive face, and a generally manic demeanor. In other words, that resulted in the birth of Crash Bandicoot. With the main character of the game decided upon and other ancillary characters like the big bad boss Dr. Neo Cortex in progress, attention shifted to how to actually create the game within the confines of the Sony PlayStation's hardware. As was often the case with game development of the time, the actual art assets and development for the title occurred on fairly powerful machines, oftentimes with capabilities far exceeding the consoles that the games would eventually run on. In the case of Crash Bandicoot, Naughty Dog purchased $100,000 silicon graphics workstations to assist in the development of the title, and using that hardware, the team began to create all of the art, characters, models, levels, and animations that would eventually make up the game. The issue, as it almost always was, was how to transform these high-quality models and rendered graphics from a $100,000 workstation into a format that could be run on a $299 home video game console. Here, the team had to utilize some pretty interesting graphics programming tricks, while at the same time figuring out what the PlayStation's graphics chip could actually do well. So let's just take a step back real quick and provide some perspective. The PlayStation was one of the first home consoles capable of three-dimensional graphics, but that didn't mean that it was capable of outputting super high-quality three-dimensional graphics. Developers of the time kind of had to make a choice. 
You could either ask the PlayStation to render a scene using more detailed texture map polygons, albeit at the risk of tanking performance, or you could ask the PlayStation to render a scene using flat-shaded polygons, which would improve performance, but would also reduce the overall image quality of the scene. The question was, which do developers value more, image quality or gameplay responsiveness? For Crash Bandicoot, the answer was simple. The team wanted both. (laughs) But considering that that literally would have been impossible using conventional methods, the team had to strategize on how best to bring their vision to life. They knew the limitations of the PlayStation hardware, but they also realized that if given enough polygons, they could sort of fake a higher quality image despite using flat shaded polygons to compose the scene. So the team decided to amplify the density of polygons in each scene and character, specifically assigning over 500 polygons to Crash's model alone. Now, just to put that into perspective, the PlayStation was only capable of displaying 900 total polygons on the screen at any point in time. So that means that over half of the polygons on the screen were devoted solely to Crash himself. That, from my perspective, that's kind of amazing when you think about it. Anyway, with such few polygons to play with, the team had to get creative in how to maximize what was visible to the player while not impacting the performance of the title. And here, the team took inspiration from the programming team over at id Software, and specifically, how John Carmack figured out when and how to display and calculate various scenes in the game. So, let's talk about graphics in gaming, and in particular, how developers optimize their titles so that the games perform as well as possible. Here I'd like to focus on one specific aspect of that optimization, which is the calculation of what objects and pieces of a game's environment are actually visible to the player. When a game engine presents a world to the player, it's typically designed to be as seamless and realistic as possible. To the player, it feels like you're walking through a fully realized world, and that nearly anything you see simply exists. In reality, though, the only things that exist, at least visually, are the objects immediately in your field of view, and perhaps some objects on the periphery of the player's character vision. In other words, the game only displays and calculates graphics on the things you can actually see. The stuff behind you? Who cares? You can't see it. By ignoring things outside of the player's visual field of view, developers can streamline their engines to only calculate the graphics that actually matter at any point in time, and by extension, performance improves. Now, that is a very simplistic explanation of what's going on in these games, as there are countless other systems, especially in modern titles, that continue functioning regardless of whether a visual is on screen or not. But using this simple explanation of graphics calculations, we can see how ingenious developers can improve their game's performance simply by controlling what the player can see. For Crash Bandicoot, this manifested itself in the level design for the game where various objects like trees would obscure certain sections of the environment, thereby reducing the total number of polygons required to render any given scene. Further limiting the number of polygons displayed on screen at any time was the game's camera, which was designed in such a way to frame the action happening on the screen, but limit the player's overall visibility in such a way that the game's designers could control fairly explicitly what the player was able to see, and by extension, how complex any scene would end up being. Despite these tricks, each level in the game would end up being fairly complex, and oftentimes had textures that would be much larger than what the PlayStation could conceivably and reasonably process. 
So the team sat down to develop a number of supporting tools to make their large detailed levels a reality, including compression and decompression algorithms to maximize the use of available memory, as well as special level design tools to manage and streamline how each large level could be loaded. To put it into perspective, without using these techniques and tools, only one sixteenth of each level could be loaded into the team's development computers at any point in time. And that one sixteenth of a level loaded in 10 minutes. Doing the math, that means that to load an entire level, assuming that that were even possible given the uncompressed texture sizes, it would have taken 160 minutes just to load one level. The version of Crash running on a $299 PlayStation system took seconds to load each level. Absolutely crazy what talented developers can do to make their games actually work. So the game was beginning to come together, but interestingly, while playtesting the title, the team discovered that it felt a little barren, primarily driven by the fact that the PlayStation couldn't render all that many enemies on screen at once. The answer was to add a new mechanic to the game, a collectible called Wumper Fruit that effectively served the same purpose as coins in Super Mario Bros. Collect a hundred of the fruit, and you get an extra life. And at least as it pertains to Crash Bandicoot, the fruit's addition made the levels feel less bare. Coupled with the Wumper Fruit was the addition of boxes in the game world, which were designed to be smashed by the player. I know it might sound like a small thing, but with those boxes and fruit now inhabiting the game world, the title was finally starting to feel like a nearly complete experience. Now that's not to say that every idea the team had would make its way into the final game. And as you might expect, as Naughty Dog would experiment with different level types, not every one of them would work in the game. Generally speaking, the team designed levels using a very similar approach to Donkey Kong Country, which means that there would be multiple types of each level, each of which would build on each other and introduce new mechanics as the player got better at the game. So just as an example, in one stage, you might be introduced to simply walking back and forth in the game world, something very simple. A later, thematically similar level might introduce spikes and fire traps, while a later game level might introduce slippery platforms, more enemies, and tighter timed jumps. In this way, the game's difficulty would grow with the player's skill, with the goal being to create a game that felt great to play from beginning to end. There was one level, though, that was designed to be more challenging than the rest. Originally envisioned to be the game's penultimate level and a true test of your skill, Stormy Ascent was the definition of a gut-check kind of experience, with tons of tricky jumps with tight timing, platforming that would make you want to pull your hair out, and a length that dwarfed every other level. But just for reference, Stormy Ascent was four times as large as the next largest level. Naughty Dog thought that this would be the perfect way to effectively end the game, at least until they playtested it and discovered that it was just too darn difficult. So the decision was made to remove the level from the game's main playthrough, though anyone with a Game Shark could unlock the level and truly test their mettle against the most challenging content in the game. Adding music to the experience would fall to relative newcomer Josh Mansell, who before Crash Bandicoot had only a single composing credit on his resume, that being for the music in the Johnny Mnemonic interactive movie, which itself was based on Keanu Reeves' actual movie of the same name. Mansell, though, did have a fair amount of musical experience in general, having been a part of several bands and music production studios prior to his work with Naughty Dog. 
When Mansell was brought in, Naughty Dog was in the midst of a musical shakeup, as there were some internal dealings that had been attempted behind Naughty Dog's back that resulted in some hard feelings and contentious discussions with Universal Interactive as the game's publishing company. Luckily for all involved, Mansell brought a musical style focused on ambient jungle sounds, which the team all agreed fit well within the confines of the game. With all of the different elements of the title finally coming together, it was time for Naughty Dog to begin marketing the title. And the first stop on their proverbial list was Sony Computer Entertainment. They needed to convince Sony that their new game was going to be a worthwhile addition to the upcoming PlayStation lineup. And to do that, the team spent two days putting together a demo for Sony to review in late 1995. Sony saw the demo and basically said, cool, but then moved on with their business. Until finally, in March of 1996, Sony agreed to serve as a publisher for the title. Incidentally, Sony never did agree to truly have Crash be Sony's official mascot, but that didn't stop many gamers, myself included, from equating the Sony PlayStation with Crash Bandicoot back in the 90s. Anyway, with Sony on board, attention turned to demoing the title to the game-playing public, which back in the mid-90s meant gearing up for the annual Electronics Entertainment Expo, or E3. As E3 approached, something interesting and downright shady happened. Universal Interactive told Naughty Dog that they couldn't attend E3, and that Universal would be demoing the game itself, which certainly feels like the company trying to take credit for Naughty Dog's hard work. Now, I don't know for certain what the deal was with this thing, but I can certainly empathize with Naughty Dog. Here was a company that had worked on several titles previously, and was finally working as a more professional game development studio. They sign this deal with Universal Interactive and are given creative freedom to create the game they want to make. They get constant positive feedback from pretty much everyone, and they truly believe this title will put the company on the map. And then, at the last minute before they'd be able to show their creation to the literal world, their publishing partner says, thanks, but no thanks, you're not needed here. Naughty Dog, for what it's worth, didn't take that lying down, and they attended E3 regardless, printing up a bunch of copies of a flyer that basically said, Crash Bandicoot is a creation of Naughty Dog. And by the way, in a move that I absolutely loved, they went right up to Universal Interactive's president and handed him a copy of the document for him to review, literally right before the show. To say that he was angry would be an understatement, but seriously, I probably would have done the same thing if I was in Naughty Dog's shoes. Regardless of those difficulties, Naughty Dog did get proper attribution for the title, and it was so well received that it maintained the coveted spot at the front of Sony's E3 booth, representing the state of the art for the new PlayStation system. Naughty Dog had finally hit a home run. Crash Bandicoot was going to be a star. Eventually, development on the game would complete, and Crash Bandicoot would release on the Sony PlayStation system in September of 1996. Upon its release, the game was met with mostly favorable critical response, with many publications praising the game's graphics and variety in level design. That said, there were some critics who felt that the gameplay and overall linearity were detractors from the experience, with some even declaring the game as subpar in comparison to other contemporary platformers. Now, it does bear mentioning that one of those contemporary titles that Crash Bandicoot was being compared against was the absolutely revolutionary Super Mario 64, which even Jason Rubin and Andy Gavin, 
the founders of Naughty Dog, the creators of Crash Bandicoot, when they first saw Super Mario 64 in action, they just kind of looked at each other and just simply said, Shigeru Miyamoto is a genius. So they were incredibly impressed with Super Mario 64, and they kind of looked at themselves and said, oh, geez, I guess that's what a... 3D platformer should look like. Not to disparage their own game, but, I mean, Super Mario 64, pretty revolutionary. Regardless, though, of how it compared to Super Mario 64, Crash Bandicoot itself would gain a pretty solid following just itself, with over 1 million copies sold by the end of 1996, which would eventually balloon to nearly 7 million copies sold over its lifetime. That was good enough, by the way, to be considered one of the best-selling PlayStation games of all time. The game was so successful that it would spawn an entire franchise, with several sequels and spin-off titles released over the years. In recent years, the original Crash Bandicoot trilogy, which were the only three games developed by Naughty Dog itself, would be released as a remastered collection, along with a fourth mainline entry released in 2020. Spin-offs and other games in the Crash universe continue to be worked on and released even today. Crash Bandicoot would end up having a long-lasting legacy, but perhaps even more important than the game and character's legacy itself would be its impact on Naughty Dog. Crash Bandicoot effectively introduced Naughty Dog to the world as a quality top-tier game development company, and over the years they would work on a number of blockbuster, absolutely stellar titles that gamers around the world would love. We're talking about things like Jack and Daxter, Uncharted, The Last of Us. Naughty Dog quickly became one of the most respected developers out there, and that rise to superstardom all effectively started with an orange bandicoot. Regardless of how you may personally feel about Crash Bandicoot, the fact is that Crash is an incredibly important release in video game history. It established Naughty Dog as a quality game development company, and it cemented Sony's PlayStation as a legitimate contender in the video game industry. Beyond that, it introduced players to an alternative 3D platforming experience that would remain relevant for the last 27 years and counting. Crash's original outing may not have gotten the same acclaim as some other contemporary platformers, but that in no way diminishes the achievement of the Naughty Dog team, and Crash Bandicoot is definitely one of those titles that will likely be remembered forever. are now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play Crash Bandicoot today versus when it was released around 27-ish years ago. So Crash Bandicoot, just to refresh everybody's memory, is a three-dimensional platforming game, though it is not an open-world 3D platforming game. So let's talk about that real quickly. Let's talk about the difference between an open world game and the way that Crash is designed. Because a lot of times, I know today, when I think three-dimensional platformer, I think open world like Super Mario 64, Banjo-Kazooie, or any other of those kind of games where you literally have an open environment and you can move through it in three dimensions. Crash Bandicoot is a little bit different in that you don't really have a wide open world. You have a very directed world. As you walk through a level 
And it could be any perspective. It could be side perspective. It could be behind the character, in front of the character, whatever it is. You have effectively walls preventing you from going off the beaten path. So it's not like you can simply navigate yourself to anywhere within the game world. Now, granted, the game world is absolutely, truly three-dimensional. You can move up, down, left, right, and with depth. So it is a three-dimensional experience. It is just not an open-world three-dimensional experience. So it's just a little bit different. It's a much more directed kind of design. So as you play the game, as is customary with many platform titles you will have a number of levels that you have to complete. And in each level, you can collect Wumper Fruit and break crates. So basically the way it works, and this is, we talked about this a little bit, where the game world is made up of all of these different crates to break and fruit to collect. If you collect 100 fruit, you are able, able to get an extra life. If you break all of the crates in a level, you can actually unlock a special hidden gem, which if you unlock a bunch of other gems, unlock secret passages in different levels and all sorts of cool stuff. It's, by the way, pretty darn difficult in many of the levels to uh, break all of the different crates. Regardless, in those crates, you might find some additional fruit. You could find extra lives. You might find a power-up. There's a floating mask kind of power-up that will grant invincibility if you collect three of them. And until you get three of them, any of the masks that you pick up will act as a sort of shield, allowing you to get hit one more time, or at least however many number of times, considering the number of masks that you have collected. Uh, As you play through the game, as you might imagine, you do have to defeat enemies. And in this game, one hit kills, at least if you don't have any sort of shield. So it is a little bit challenging. It's not like you have a life bar or hearts that you're able to accumulate Basically, the only way you can survive a hit is if you have one of those shields. Of course, if you fall down into a pit, there's really no shields that are going to save you from that. You will die. That being said, there are generally plenty of checkpoints placed throughout the levels, and you can acquire a good number of extra lives to help you progress in the game. There's actually a ton of extra lives hidden in various crates or even just laying around in the world for you to pick up. Some of the levels in the game, though, are particularly challenging. So I can guarantee you that as a first-time player, you're going to face some difficulty here, regardless of the number of extra lives and checkpoints that you might have throughout the levels. At periodic points throughout your experience, you're going to encounter a boss level. Each of those bosses have special mechanics that need to be learned and eventually defeated. I will say that the level variety and diversity is pretty great. There are numerous different types of levels and perspectives used across the game. And I especially liked how different levels would build on each other in terms of difficulty and mechanics. It was very similar to how Donkey Kong Country's levels gradually introduced mechanics that would ramp up the difficulty as you played the game. And by the way, if you want to learn more about that level design kind of concept, we talked about that in pretty good depth during our Donkey Kong Country episode. So listen to that one if you're interested in learning more about it. Anyway, for expert players, there are some additional challenges. And like we were just talking about, you can break all of the boxes in a given level. And if you can do that without dying in that level, you unlock a number of different gems. And some of those gems will enable alternate paths through the various levels. I've got to admit that I spent more time getting conked on the head with falling boxes at the end of levels rather than actually completing the challenge. I think maybe one or two levels I was able to actually complete or break all of the crates 
in a given level. And granted, I wasn't really trying to go for 100% completion from that perspective. But I do appreciate, and I like that it existed, that that whole challenge existed, for any individuals who really wanted to devour the entire gaming experience. Overall, the game follows mostly traditional platforming gameplay, though I do want to call attention to a mechanic that is decidedly old school, and that is the way that the game handles saving progress. First of all, I'm going to come right out and say it. Us gamers today are spoiled with all sorts of games that autosave progress and make it relatively easy to retry difficult levels. In the original Crash Bandicoot, that just wasn't a thing. Sure, there was a way to save progress, or if you didn't have a memory card, you could obtain a password that would let you retain your progress. But that saving mechanism was tied exclusively to the game's bonus levels, which were sprinkled fairly liberally across many of the levels in the base game. The thing is, you are never guaranteed to be able to save your game. Because when you reach one of these bonus levels, which involves collecting three pictures of either uh, the female Bandicoot, I think her name was Tawna or Tawny, I can't recall off the top of my head, or three pictures of Dr. Neocortex, you would then go into a bonus level. Once you get into that bonus level, there is no guarantee you're going to be able to save the game because you could fail the bonus level. So if you don't beat the bonus level, you can't save it. And if you don't beat the bonus level, you cannot retry it. And I've got to tell you, some of those bonus levels are pretty tricky. If you do get into a bonus level and you fail, there's literally no way, at least no way I could find, to restart it. So the only way you'd be able to save your game at that point is to rely on beating a bonus level later in the game. And as the game goes on, the bonus levels get more and more difficult, which means it's going to be pretty tough. You may actually have a problem even getting to the point of being able to save your game. Now, the other option is you could just lose all of your lives and restart from your last good save. But if you've gotten further into the game and you now have a bunch of levels and levels can get pretty tricky, let's say you have a bunch of levels and you just cannot, for the life of you, complete one of the bonus levels, you may have a lot of rework on your hand. So you could lose a bit of progress. For what it's worth, that mechanic that we just talked about, that whole save game mechanic, would be entirely overhauled in the Trilogy Remake Collection. And in that one, you could save or autosave after every single level and bonus levels within individual levels could be challenged as many times as you wanted without losing any lives. And for that matter, you didn't really need to complete the bonus level to save your progress since it was all based on normal autosave kind of mechanics that we're used to in modern titles. But in its original incarnation, Crash Bandicoot didn't have any of these creature comforts. Anyway, I'm not going to deal with any critiques of that system just yet. We're going to save that for when we talk more specifically about the game's playability. So before we move on to talk about the more specific aspects of the game, like the graphics, the sound, the music, the story, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because I just enjoy it. I love looking at the back of the box, and I've told this story before, but when we were in computer or video game stores back in the 80s and 90s, a lot of times, our buying decisions were based on what the box looked like, or in the case of Crash Bandicoot, what the jewel case looked like. What did the cover look like? What did the back of the box say? What did it, how did the game company, how did the developers market their titles? 
we didn't always have, we didn't have necessarily magazine articles that we could reference. Although around this time we were kind of getting a lot more magazines, but we didn't have the internet. Certainly we didn't have YouTube where we could look up gameplay videos. It was all really dependent upon what we knew about what we might've seen in magazines, or if we didn't have a magazine to look at what the box actually said. So for Crash Bandicoot, the back of the box says the best action platform game I've ever seen or played. That was from Die Hard Game Fan. Enter the vivid 3D world of Crash Bandicoot, a marsupial on a mission. His brains have been scrambled, his girlfriend is held captive, and his arch nemesis has a big N on his forehead. And you thought you had it tough. Over 30 beautiful levels with awesome sound effects and music, plus the type of gameplay you've been craving. Encounter bonus levels, fiendish traps, hair-raising enemies, disappearing bridges, only now in all three dimensions. Uncover hidden areas and secret bonus levels, and a fantasy cartoon world comes to life exclusively for the Sony PlayStation game console. And then, of course, there are some screenshots on the back of the box, which all look pretty darn good. So that was how Naughty Dog and Sony decided to market the original Crash Bandicoot for the PlayStation. And I mean, I think it was pretty effective. It definitely looked interesting. And I remember seeing Crash Bandicoot when it first came out. And I thought to myself, oh boy, this actually looks really good. It was definitely a step up for many platform games, at least visually at the time. So... Let's move on to the more specific aspects of the game. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. And here, I thought the team did a great job with creating a brightly colored, fast-paced game, especially considering the limitations of the PlayStation's hardware. Honestly, in my head, I never would have assumed that most of Crash's character model, as well as other elements in the game, were simply flat-shaded polygons without any appreciable texture. The designers hid that fact remarkably well during gameplay, and it made the game feel more graphically intense than what it actually was. Character models, both for Crash as well as enemies and bosses, were all distinct and designed well, and animations were smooth without any real slowdown that I was able to notice. Overall, this felt like a graphical powerhouse for the PlayStation, and I don't really have any complaints about how the game looked. Moving on to the sound and music, the overall music for the game is generally subdued and kind of fades into the background a bit, but whenever you do hear the jungle beats, it absolutely works. I don't know that there's any track I would call 100% recognizable or memorable outside of maybe the main theme, but within the context of the game itself, the music all sounded good. Sound effects were similarly well designed, and I honestly have no complaints about the auditory environment in the game. It all just sounded good, and it utilized the PlayStation's audio capabilities, as well as its CD audio storage space, as well as nearly any early PlayStation game. So, let's talk about the narrative and story a little bit. Crash Bandicoot is the story of Dr. Neo Cortex, an evil mad scientist who is attempting to create an army of animal slaves, and Crash Bandicoot, a Bandicoot who, for some reason, is rejected from the pool of potential transformation victims most likely because he isn't the best specimen for a good old-fashioned brainwashing. Upon that rejection and failed brainwash experiment, Crash is thrown from the castle and a female bandicoot, Tauna, is selected to take Crash's place. 
Crash doesn't want to let Tana be brainwashed and turned into a hapless minion, so he begins his journey back to Dr. Neocortex's castle, defeating countless foes, traversing dangerous levels, and eventually saving the day. Now, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Platforming titles do not need a strong story to be a successful game experience, and Crash is no exception. That said, I do appreciate the narrative elements at play here, which are mostly told via a cutscene at the beginning of the game and a cutscene at the end of the game. Overall, there is just enough narrative here to give purpose to your platforming adventure, and I personally think it hits the mark. Moving on to the playability and controls, the controls for Crash Bandicoot are fairly simple and similar to other three-dimensional platformers released around the same time. You use your directional pad to move in one of four directions, either side to side or into and out of the screen, and you can jump over obstacles or on top of enemies in order to progress through each level. You also have access to a spin move, which looks kind of like the Tasmanian Devil's Tornado. That spin move can break boxes and defeat enemies, so it's pretty useful most of the time. Interestingly, that spin move can also knock power-ups and lives away from you and off the stage, which means you can't just use the spin move constantly without the risk of losing vital items. That was a shock for me, by the way, when I was playing the game, and I knocked over, I broke one of the crates, and I went over to collect the extra life that was floating there, and I guess I hit the spin button, and it ended up kicking the life away from me, and I didn't get that extra life. I was heartbroken. But it was okay, because then I realized, oh, I just can't do that. Anyway, as you navigate the game world, you encounter and defeat enemies, you navigate past obstacles, and you break a variety of boxes that range between simple wooden crates to TNT-filled explosives. Sometimes, by the way, those TNT crates are even hidden, which once again makes it so that you have to be just a bit more careful in your platforming than what you might assume. Overall, the game's controls are fine, though I will say that the physics used for jumping can sometimes feel a little bit floaty. It definitely takes some getting used to, especially if you're used to more modern platforming titles, or even more traditional classic platforming titles. I don't know that I can say I'm a fan of the jump physics in the original game, though it did seem like the remake improved those physics a bit. So just for reference, I did play both the original Crash Bandicoot as well as the remade version of Crash Bandicoot 1, just to have a little bit of framework for comparison. For the most part, the games are very similar, but they did improve the physics just a bit. At least it seemed like they improved the physics just a bit in the remake. So as far as playability goes, there are some critiques, as often happens as we're looking at some of these classic games. First of all, I have to talk about the game's forced perspective and how that translates into navigating the game's world. Simply put, there is some wonky depth perception issues happening here. Now, it could be me, but I will say that I had some difficulty in jump spacing in many of the levels, which combined with the floaty jump physics made the game more difficult than it likely had to be. And I just want to say, I have played plenty of three-dimensional platform games, both modern and classic. For whatever reason, Crash and the way that it was the perspective and the camera angles and everything, it just made it feel more difficult. I just couldn't get the, the whole depth perception thing down in this particular game. I don't know what it was. I eventually got used to it well enough, but it definitely affected me. It even affected me on the side-scrolling levels. 
So I actually had some issues with those as well. You would think, oh, well, that's pretty simple. It's just side to side. But in this game, it was designed just differently. And my brain just didn't like the fact that I could walk into the game world despite seeing the level as what would have been a traditional two-dimensional side-scrolling experience in other games. So let me explain, just because that sounds a little confusing. When you play a two-dimensional platforming game, like let's say Donkey Kong Country or even the original Super Mario Brothers, you can move left and right, and you can jump or sometimes move up and down, but you can't move into or out of the game world. There is no depth there, which means... If you press left or right, you're just going to move left or right. In Crash, when there is a side-scrolling level, it does not take away the depth movement. So, yes, you can move left or right, but you can also move into and out of the game world. And in some levels, if you move into the game world and try to move to the right, you may actually fall off the stage. And this was one of the main reasons why some of the bonus levels that I was talking about why I had some difficulty getting to the save points because for some reason my brain just couldn't deal with that specific mechanic all that well. There were times when I would jump to the right and I'm thinking, okay, I'm just going to move right to the right on this screen. And I ended up being, I guess, too far into the background or too close into the foreground. And I just fell off the screen anyway and totally missed the the three-dimensional aspect of where I was supposed to be navigating side to side. So That, once again, it could have been me. It could be something wrong with my own depth perception. But it is kind of weird that other games I'm able to play pretty well. And this one just posed some additional difficulty for me. So the physics, the camera's perspective, and the general 3D implementation, at least for me, left a bit to be desired. And I think the game was made more difficult because of those design decisions. Not really because the game's mechanics were difficult, though they were a bit challenging. But for me, it just didn't feel like I really had control, or at least I didn't have perfect control, over where I was navigating my character to. It felt like an early effort at 3D platforming, which, of course, it was. But that also means that it didn't age quite as well as I would have hoped. And interestingly, even the remake isn't perfect in this regard. It is absolutely better. But it still retains most of the general controls and physics from the original release. For longtime series fans, that's probably fine and might be exactly what you'd be looking for. But if you've never played a Crash game before, or you played it in passing when you were younger, which is the way kind of I've been, I never really completed Crash when I was younger, but I did play it a bit, you should prepare for some pain. If you're not super used to it already, it is going to be a bit of a challenging experience, and not necessarily because it is a truly challenging platforming title from a mechanics perspective. I've also got to go back and talk once again about the insanely old school save system mechanics. It can be supremely frustrating to fail a bonus level, which loses your opportunity to save your game. And for me, this happened more times than I care to admit. And like we talked about, the bonus levels are all side scrolling and include side scrolling platforming, which should be easy enough. But because of that depth issue I was talking about, There were plenty of times where I accidentally jumped off the side, not necessarily the right left side to side, but the back front side to side, which was really frustrating. Also, I would be remiss in not calling out some particularly challenging levels that just seemed designed to kill you. 
That's right. I am talking about those silly bridge levels where a single misstep can make you fail. Once again, I felt like the implementation of the game world's depth served to arbitrarily make those levels more difficult. Though even without that perceived issue, those levels were just hard, especially the second bridge level. Oh my gosh, it was just really difficult, and I didn't want to use the rope trick. Apparently there is a way you can walk through the levels just by running along the rope of the bridge, which basically allows you to avoid any of the obstacles or breaking planks or the boars that are running back and forth or bouncing on the turtle bellies. Yeah, there's a lot of mechanics in these levels, but you can kind of avoid that by running the rope on the bridge. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go through the levels as they were designed and they were pretty darn tricky. Also, for what it's worth, I did play through and complete the Stormy Ascent level, which is that level that they removed from the game for being too hard. Um, I, you know, I actually liked that level. It was challenging, but it felt really well designed. And I thought the challenge in that level was actually fair and was able to be overcome with practice. That, for me, was an example of a hard level designed the right way. There were some other levels in the game where they were hard simply because of other faults with the game itself, which to me was sort of artificial challenge. So overall, the game controls fine and it plays fine, but it is not nearly as smooth as many other platformer titles, even including those that were released contemporaneously with Crash. It's not bad, it just takes some getting used to, and you have to be in the right frame of mind to really have a good time here. So overall... It felt fun. It was a fun, worthwhile experience, other than some of the frustrations that I had mentioned before. When you're playing a level and everything clicks, it feels amazing. And I especially like the levels where you have to run towards the screen away from an oncoming death trap like a boulder. Even though you can't really see where you're going, the game gives you just enough visibility to navigate the levels, and they feel awesome to complete. I also appreciated all of the different mechanics throughout the levels uh, because there was just a variety of perspectives. There were different moving platforms. There were unique situations. Like there was even one level where you ride the back of a hog. There was another level where most of the level is pitch dark unless you pick up a special power up. I love level diversity and level variety. And those situations just added a ton of diversity to the overall experience and it made the game just feel better to play as a result. Overall, the game felt pretty good to play, though it wasn't without its frustrations. What is our verdict on the very first Crash Bandicoot? From my perspective, I feel like Crash is an acquired taste, and I can 100% see how this wouldn't necessarily appeal to everyone. It seems like the game had just enough uniqueness from a control and 3D perspective to make it feel dramatically different than other 3D platformers of the time, which can be both a blessing and a curse. In this case, I'm not totally convinced that the game is as fun as it could have been, though I admit that I did mostly enjoy my time with the title. Still, I can't wholeheartedly recommend the original Crash Bandicoot to everyone, and for that reason, I believe Crash Bandicoot just barely makes the cut as one of our golden oldies. There's definitely goodness here, and there's a better than average chance that you'll have a good time. 
It just feels like a situation where some of the outstanding aspects of the game, like its graphics and sound, are dragged down by a sometimes frustrating control scheme. For platforming games, controls can make or break the experience, and at least as far as I'm concerned, there was enough seemingly arbitrary difficulty peppered throughout the experience to make the whole affair feel less fun than it otherwise could have felt. But I can absolutely see the positives as well. And honestly, this was a tough one for me, because it wasn't a slam dunk in any particular direction. From my standpoint, it certainly was not a Pantheon entry. I don't think it's a mediocre mention. I think it's better than that. If I look at the totality of the experience, that's where I really do believe that the good outweighs the bad, which is why for me, Crash Bandicoot is the newest member of our list of golden oldies. was our episode on Crash Bandicoot. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about games and classic technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com, and I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the gaming community around this podcast. We have tons of great discussions out on Discord. I really encourage you all to join. Once again, just a reminder, there is also our newly launched Patreon, newly launched as of today, July 31st. So this is brand new, late-breaking news. Patreon.com slash Classic Gaming Today. Feel free to join out there. And once again, the preview for this upcoming Wednesday's episode will be included after this show concludes. So stick around after the music and you will hear a little bit of our upcoming podcast episode. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the NES and arcade classic Ninja Gaiden. So feel free to write in if you have particularly fond or not so fond memories of those experiences. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast engines. So if you feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave a review on your podcast service of choice. This is not about bolstering star counts. It's not about trying to harvest a bunch of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome, that means we're doing something right. What it's really all about is gathering feedback to make sure that this can remain the best possible podcast it can be, and to make sure that I am delivering the content that you all want to listen to. If we get that feedback, make sure that we don't have any gaps or any issues then it is better for all involved. So I truly appreciate anybody who has sent me feedback. It's definitely helped in the creation of the show, and I definitely want to encourage others to continue to provide that feedback so that we can always make this the best possible podcast it can be. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Ninja Gaiden. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone.
And now, a preview from our next Patreon-exclusive podcast episode, The Sequels That Never Came. And welcome to Classic Gaming Today Expansion Pack, where we take an expanded look into the classic games and technology that continue to shape the gaming experiences we all know and love today. I am your host, Tony, and this is a Patreon-exclusive podcast, so if you're listening to this right now, thank you for supporting the show, thank you for contributing to its continued success, and hopefully you enjoy this Patreon-exclusive podcast series. This is meant to build on, but not copy, the traditional Classic Gaming Today formula. This is the spot where we're going to experiment on all sorts of different kinds of topics that might be a bit beyond the scope of CGT, and we may even, on occasion, touch upon some modern classics. Because even though on the main podcast we only talk about games that are over 20 years old, here we can let our hair down just a little bit. So for today's episode, and this is the inaugural episode of this podcast series, in today's episode, we're going to talk about the sequels that never came. And I think we all probably have played various video games or video game series or computer game series where we play them, we love them, the developers come to us and they say, we are going to release a sequel Just hold on to your hats. Just wait for it. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. And then it never comes. Now, sometimes games do get sequels, but those sequels are completely different than the games that came before it. So those are entirely fair game as well for this discussion. We're going to be talking about games that were promised to us, but just never made it to market for whatever reason. And we'll go into the reasons behind each of the options or each of the selections that I've made for this particular episode. I am definitely interested in hearing about all of your own personal sequels that never came because I'm sure you have some that don't necessarily line up with some of my selections. So if you do want to share that input, feel free to shoot me a note either out on Patreon, as you guys are probably all aware. I also have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at Classic Gaming T, and we also have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. That's where we have a ton of great discussion about the Classic Gaming Today podcast in general. That's where we'll have any discussions around our Patreon-related content as well. So feel free to jump in there if you are a patron and you are in Discord. That means you will get a cool color-coded role based on whatever tier of support that you're providing. So just a little bit of an extra thing out on Discord for anybody who is interested. This is episode number one 
of our expansion pack podcast series. And every episode is going to be just a little bit different. Just like the expansion packs of the past, sometimes those expansion packs added new story content, other times they may have modified existing gameplay mechanics, and sometimes they were effectively standalone from the original game on which they were based. This podcast is going to do the same kind of things, albeit in audio form, and I am excited to be a part of it. So, before we go on to talk about the topic at hand, as I promised out on our Patreon page, I do want to give everybody a little bit of insight behind the scenes as far as what I am currently working on with the main podcast as well as the Patreon-exclusive podcast. But for the most part, the work that I've been doing now, other than getting this episode up and ready to go, and I am recording this on Friday night, July what is it? July 28th, I am recording this episode. So this is about as current of an update as you're going to get for the Classic Gaming Today podcast. So I'm actually working on episodes 61 through 63. Now, anybody who's out on the Discord will recognize that the roadmap that I have posted only goes up to episode 49. So you might be saying, what the heck? What's going on with, with all the episodes in the 50s? Well, for the most part, those are all already done. So just to give you a little bit of insight into my process around this, because a few people have asked about how I manage the podcast, how I create each of the individual episodes. What I basically do is I decide up front the next, I'll say, three to five games that I want to focus on over the course of whatever the next episodes are that I'm personally working on, which, like I said, are most likely a bit in the future from what is actually posted. I usually have a pretty large backlog of episodes ready to go just in case I get sick or can't post for some reason. I want to make sure that I have that available. And then I do edit each episode before they go live just in case there are some additions or some more modern kinds of things I want to throw in there, or I'll say more topical or time-based kinds of things. So as an example, when we launched the Discord server, I had to go back in and re-edit any of the pre-recorded episodes to make sure that I had references to the Discord server out there in the introduction and the outro for the podcast, because otherwise nobody would actually know to look in the show notes for the Discord. And I'm under the assumption that not a ton of people read those show notes in depth. So I want to make sure that I make that I make those broadcast kind of messages as part of the podcast in general. Anyway, I am working on episode 61 through 63 actively. Episode 61 right now is looking like it's going to be Doom 64 for the Nintendo 64. Episode 62 will be E.T. for the Atari 2600, which was based on a recommendation. I'll use that term in quotes. Recommendation from the Discord server. And then episode 63 is a little bit up in the air right now. Right now I'm looking at... It's looking like it might be Jill of the Jungle, which was a shareware title from back in the early 90s by Epic Mega Games that, of course, did expand into a three episode kind of arc. I'm looking at that. I'm not sure if that's going to be a standalone episode by itself or if I'll throw in some additional games or an additional game and kind of rebrand it as a shareware driven episode. I'm not quite sure yet. It depends on how much content is there, because as you all know, the typical structure of the episodes for classic gaming today is we have the history portion and then we have the section where we go through the pseudo review kind of discussion. The overall goal for each episode is to be around one hour in length. So I usually try to 
construct each of the episodes so that we have an hour's worth of content between those two sections. In the event that I don't have an hour's worth of content, I try to think about how I can make it an hour's worth of content. And that might mean adding additional games or taking a little bit of a different slant from a story approach, meaning how do I construct the narrative around the show so that it's not just focused on the individual game, but maybe more about the historical context of the time period in which the game was being created. So I just mess around with that stuff a little bit until I hit that sweet spot of getting around an hour's worth of content for every single episode. So like I said, episode 61 is going to be Doom 64. That is probably, just not to go into spoiler territory... That is probably the game that it has taken me the longest to actually play for this podcast. I hope you all enjoyed that preview of the sequels that never came, the very first episode in our Patreon-exclusive podcast series. I hope to see you all out there at patreon.com slash today. Until next time, I hope you all have a great week, and I know we'll be talking again soon.